You can almost feel the anticipation of the Apostle Peter as he is writing and starting to close out this letter for this church that had been spread across the what we would know as modern-day Turkey. There is this uh, rising enthusiasm and interest in his heart, this, this growing affection and longing, as it were, for the, the day of Christ's return. Really, this, this whole letter has been, has been about this subject, and, and he started his letter with, with, with drawing attention to it in chapter 1, verse 4. We'll, we'll get there in a moment. But now as he's beginning to, to wrap up his letter, he wants to continue to call attention to the fact that Jesus is coming. It doesn't matter what the pretenders will say. It doesn't matter what the false teachers will say. They'll question, where is the promise of his coming? But you can rest assured, the work is finished. Christ has died. He's been raised. He's with the Father. He's seated in the heavenlies. It is finished. Nothing is left to do, and he's coming. There has been a fascination over the last 20 years, probably much longer, about the end of the world. Some who would look at the end of the world from a a false perspective, others that would hopefully see the world for what Peter is wanting to represent it as this anticipation for the coming of Christ and all that that entails. Just in the last 20 years, as it were, I, I, I thought about five pretty significant events that maybe the rest of us can, can call attention to. The first would be Y2K, the year 2000, right? And uh, I was working at Boeing Satellite Systems at the time, and, uh, and I'll tell you, things were going to be bad. All of the computer systems, all of the, the information, all of the, the, the formatting and coding that took place on those satellites, and they were all going to fall out of the sky, right? And, and all of the computer systems, the financial computer systems across the world were going were gonna to shut down, and it was going to be a disaster around the world. So what were we told to do? We were told to stockpile, right? But we were told to, to make sure that we, we got our cache of food. And uh, maybe living in California, people were a little bit more paranoid than here in Ohio. But let me tell you, it, it was a big deal out there. You know, had to get your, your water, get your food, make sure you had your cash stored away. You were ready for the next six months and because things were going to be super bad. Of course, Y2K, year 2000, came and went without a hint of issue. A second was maybe the, the modern-day prophet Harold Camping. This uh, modern-day pastor in California who predicted that the end of the world would come on May 21st, 2011. Of course, that was at least his second, maybe third or fourth prediction. I guess he figured if he chose enough dates, eventually he would get there. Of course, May, two, uh, May 21st, 2011 came and went without incident. So he had to rearrange his numbers. He had to look back in the text. He had to kind of sort out the calendar differences between the Old and New Testament. So he came up with October 21st. That's the day. Of course, that was also not the day. The third that came to mind is 2012, the Aztec and Mayan calendar, right? Remember that? And uh, the National Geographic actually wrote a, uh, a segment the day before on December 20th, 2012, to say, watch out, be careful, 
it might be the end of the world. The calendar of the Mayans that stretched back 5,000 years and apparently the starting date was somewhere 314 BC and on December 21st, 2012 was the end of this calendar and thus potentially the end of the world as we know it. Fourth and maybe a little less well known is the four blood moons. You remember that, right? Uh, 2015, uh, modern-day prophet John Hagee decided that there was some, some evidence in history for these four blood moons. Um, how, how it was supposed to work out is there was a series of four consecutive lunar eclipses. All of these lunar eclipses that needed to happen on specific Jewish holidays and then they would be interlaced with six other full moons that were in between. And it was an indication of some major event that was supposed to happen. And looking back in history, apparently, the other times that this took place, there were significant things that happened for the nation of Israel. Of course, 2015 came and went without any real issues or events that were related to the people of Israel. And then the fifth, which is to be coming, this global environmental crisis. We're told that within the 11 years, the clock will run out on us as it relates to this irreversible damage that we will have as a result of climate change. You can watch any nature show, any National Geographic special, any documentary, and it will be in your face. This global warming agenda, the species that are on the edge or the brink of extinction, the pollution and carbon emissions and a concerted effort to resolve this issue. There are summits, there is legislation and all of these things that are supposed to call our attention, raise awareness and make us afraid of the day that's coming. The clock is gonna run out. There's actually something you may be aware of, the doomsday clock. It's a symbolic clock in, in, in uh, Chicago, and apparently it shows that we have 100 seconds left till midnight, and midnight is when the time expires on the history of the world. You would think that for all the attention that our world gives to the end of the age, there would be a heightened spiritual awareness. Here we are on September 11th, and... Perhaps you can remember back so many years at the, the resurgence of spiritual interest that happened on this day because of the, of the trauma that took place in New York. But it was short-lived. It was temporary. Whatever spiritual fascinations there were that emerged during that time would soon come to an end. We're told to fix our attention on this life, on this world, on this planet, that we're, we've all got to save this planet for our kids. But as we look into the word of God, we recognize there is a measure of stewardship that we are called to. But we're also called to an awareness that we are not the ones that hold this world together. God is. Colossians chapter 1, 15 and 17 makes this point clear. He, speaking of Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. 
Meaning, God is overall. The things that are tangible, the things that are physical, and the things that are invisible and spiritual. God is over it. He made it. They submit to his lordship, his sovereignty. They're accountable to him. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He's God of all. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. He created it. He will keep it. He will preserve it. And he's preserving it for a coming day, a day of judgment. That's what we're learning about in our passage this morning. Psalm chapter 33, verse 6, the psalmist says this, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their hosts. God spoke his creative, sovereign power, created it all. It's the same word, by the way, that Peter alludes to in 2 Peter chapter 3. And if you haven't turned there already, can I just encourage you, get your Bibles out, mark them up, take notes so that we can see and remember this together. First, or 2 Peter chapter 3 verse 5 says this, Peter is calling attention to the significance of the word. For they deliberately overlook, speaking of the false prophets, that the heavens existed long ago, the earth was formed out of water and through water by the, what church? The word of God. This word of the Lord that breathed and created. Now listen, verse six, and that by means of these, what, what's, what's these? The word of the Lord and the power of God, by the means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. Verse seven, but by the same word that the heavens and earth that now existed are stored up for fire being kept until the day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. God is keeping, God is holding, God is preserving this world for future judgment. He sets the clock, he has fixed a time, we can trust him and now we have a responsibility as God's people As we're going to see in this passage today, there is a responsibility that we have as God's people in the waiting. The world as we know it will be no more. So let's take a closer look at what we see from this passage. First, in verse 10, we see the promise of his coming. The promise of his coming. Look, it says, the day of the Lord will come. It's coming. You can trust it. You can look forward to it. He's coming. Maranatha. Our Lord comes. The day of the Lord will come like a thief. And the heavens will pass away with a roar. The heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. And the earth and the worlds that are, that are done on it, uh, the works that are done on it will be exposed. The resounding theme of chapter 3 is Jesus is coming. And Peter has hinted at this from the very beginning in chapter 1, verse 4. He says, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises. The promises, as we've been unpacking this letter, are the promises of his coming. He is coming. We see that in verse 12, waiting for and hastening the coming of God. We see that in verse 13 of chapter 3. According to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth. Jesus is coming. He's going to set all things right. And there are some things that we can see 
related to his coming. I want to just cover in the next few moments. First, his coming, he comes unexpectedly. He comes unexpectedly. It says, the day of the Lord will come like a thief. It's a picture presented by Peter is one of surprise, a thief that comes unannounced, is unexpected, without preparation, without waiting. Don't listen to the Harold Campings. Don't listen to the John Hagees. Because no one knows the day or the hour that the Lord comes, but he is coming on a fixed day. Be ready for his coming. The, the word coming here is the, is the word for to come in hostility, to come in a hostile sense. Jesus tells a number of parables related to his coming, and, and Peter's actually borrowing from the language of Christ when he talks about Jesus coming as a thief, but, but the, the coming of Christ should be characterized by readiness. We see that in Luke chapter 12. Verses 35 to 40, it says, Jesus is saying, stay dressed for action. Keep your lamps burning. Be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so they may, be, they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants when the master finds awake when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at the table. He will watch, excuse me, he will come and will serve them. If he comes in the second hour, or the second watch, or in the third, and finds them awake, blessed are those servants. But know this, that if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into, you must also be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. There is a sense of readiness. There is a sense of preparedness. Jesus is coming. Be sober. Be alert. Set your mind. Get yourself in gear. Get yourself ready for action. Peter says the same thing in his first letter in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13, when he says, prepare your minds for action. Be sober, be alert, be vigilant, be awake. Don't settle in, don't become complacent, don't become lethargic, don't step out of the mission that God has called you to. Press in, engage. His coming is imminent. This is the theological term for suddenness, without warning, the nearness of something about to happen or closeness. In the Latin, it's a picture of to hang over. You kind of get the, the, the picture of something that's kind of teetering on the edge. It's about ready to fall into the precipice. It's a sudden kind of coming, unexpected kind of coming. And because of it, God's people must be ready. Standing at the door, ready for action, ready to serve, ready for when the master returns. His coming is unexpected. His coming is also violent. He comes violently. You might also put powerfully. Notice, the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Now notice the violence of his coming expressed in the rest of this verse. The heavens will pass away with a roar. The heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. The earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. What will his coming look like? <laughs> 
Peter gives a description of some of the events of that day and there is violence, there is power, there is destruction. Same truth is reiterated in verse 12 of chapter 3. It says at the, at the second part of the, of the verse, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt away as they burn. The day of the Lord is what he's referring to. This day of wrath or day of vengeance as it's called in other parts of the scripture. A day of visitation or a day of doom. But the impression that we get from this verse or this passage is that this is a one-time event, this one-time cataclysmic event that culminates in the burning and disintegration and evaporation of the world. This event that happens in the earth, in the sky, and in the universe. And certainly, that's the culmination of the event that is described throughout the scripture, both Old and New Testament, this day of the Lord. But the Bible is not ambiguous about what the day looks like. He uses this exact phrase, the day of the Lord, 32 times. And if you include the other phrases, day of wrath, day of vengeance, day of doom, day of the great God, you have 56 times throughout the Old and New Testament where there is descriptions and helps for us to know What does this day look like? In the scripture, the day of the Lord signifies an extraordinary, miraculous intervention of God in human history for the purpose of judgment, culminating in his final judgment of the wicked on the earth and the destruction of the present universe. What we find throughout the Old and New Testament, this use of the the phrase day of the Lord And sometimes it might be a little confusing because there is both a near and present fulfillment, but also a distant and eschatological fulfillment in the various parts of the scripture that we see this phrase. So why do the prophets do it this way? Are they trying to create confusion? Are they trying to be be misleading? Or is there another purpose for the prophets speaking and interlacing the various near and far fulfillments that we find throughout the Old Testament. I want to assure your hearts to know that they did this for a reason. They did did this to establish credibility as a prophet. (laughs) Imagine making predictions about things that are going to happen years and years ahead before any of the generation that you're living in will be able to actually experience. How do you judge the credibility of a prophet if you can never get to see whether or not his prophecies come to fruition? Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 20 to 22 helps us understand the conditions upon which we should trust and believe the prophets. It says, but the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name that I have not commanded him to speak or who speaks in the name of another God, that same prophet shall die. And now the obvious question. And if you say in your heart, how should we know the word that the Lord has not spoken? Well, when a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that is a word that the Lord has not spoken. That prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You need not be afraid of him, i.e., take him out. He is not credible. If a prophet is speaking a prophecy 
and you don't see the tangible evidence of the details of that prophecy coming to fruition, you know he is not speaking for God because God's word is true and God is dependable and what God says will happen. So one of the difficulties and challenges of looking at Old Testament prophecy and seeing this interlacing of near and distant prophecies, especially related to the day of the Lord, is to know when, when are these things supposed to take place? And if it happened in the context of this passage, then we don't have any, any chance of looking into the future. Let me give you an example. Many of you are familiar with Isaiah chapter 7. You're familiar with uh, the, the situation of Ahaz, who was a wicked, evil king. And in, and in his rebellion against God, God brought armies against Ahaz and against the people of Israel, and there was incredible fear about what was about to happen. Isaiah goes to Ahaz and says, Listen, God's going to show you some mercy. God's going to come and he's going to prevent and help you in this struggle. So why don't you give God an answer about a sign that will prove to you that God will in fact come and save. Ahaz, in his rebellious heart, says, no, I'm not going to give God a sign. Partly because he didn't want God to prove himself true and partly because he didn't believe God existed at all. So Isaiah says, fine, Ahaz, you're not going to give me a sign. God will give you a sign. And here it is in Isaiah 7, 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. <laughs> How was Ahaz going to see the fulfillment of that promise that wouldn't happen until many, many years later? Well, he wasn't going to see the fulfillment of that, but he was going to see the fulfillment of very physical, tangible, clear uh, prophecies that were made in the rest of the chapter. And by the testimony of God being faithful to demonstrate his ability to play out those promises, you could bank on the fact that God was going to send Emmanuel someday. Jesus himself in flesh, born of a virgin to save the world. So often, in the Old Testament and the New Testament, there are these near and distant prophecies that will confirm the credibility of the prophet in the moment, but also point to the fulfillment of what God will do in the future. God will come unexpectedly. He will come violently. And now we see he comes sovereignly. He is the authority. He will hold us accountable. There will be a reckoning. This day of the Lord, which is a day of wrath, a day of vengeance, a day of doom. It is a day of judgment in which God will exact a reckoning and judgment on the world who has rebelled against him. There are a number of references in the Old and New Testament. I'd be happy to provide them to you. I, I wanted to put them in the notes. I just ran out of time. But um, the Old Testament prophecies uh, helped us understand that the, that the day of the Lord is a day of God's judgment against sin. For any of you who have been sinned against, for any of you who have felt the injustice of the situations that you're involved in, the day of the Lord 
is a day for you. Because it's a day for you to rest in the reality of a God who will judge, who will set the record straight, that no sin will be unpunished. And you can trust a holy God to do it. I want just in a few moments to help you see the day of the Lord, both the near fulfillment and the far fulfillment as it shows up in the book of Job or Joel. So keep your finger in 2 Peter. Turn with me to Joel. I think it's on page 760 if you're using the Pew Bible. There is a near fulfillment that establishes the credibility of the prophet Joel as it relates to the day of the Lord. So the people who are seeing this day of the Lord and seeing the direct evidence, clear evidence of God working this prophecy out can then say, this future eschatological day of the Lord, I can trust it's gonna happen the exact same way. Joel chapter one, verses 14 to 17. The prophet says, consecrate a fast. Call a solemn assembly. Gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land to the house of the Lord your God. And cry out to the Lord, alas, for the day, for the day of the Lord is near. As and as destruction from the Almighty it comes. And here is the direct, tangible evidence of God's wrath and judgment on his people in the moment that was present for them in verse 16. Is not the food cut off before our eyes, joy and gladness from the house of our God. The seed shrivels under the clods. The storehouses are, are uh, desolate. The greeneries are torn down because the grain has dried up. There was a clear evidence of God's judgment on the people. What God says is what actually happened, what they saw, the day of the Lord. It was a testimony to the credibility of Joel and a testimony of the trustworthiness of now a future day of the Lord that he will talk about in chapter 2. Chapter 2, verse 1 and 2, notice. Blow a trumpet in Zion. Sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It is near, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of uh, clouds and thick darkness like blackness there is spread upon the mountains a great and powerful people their like uh, has never have been seen before nor will be again after them through the years of all generations that should sound familiar it should resonate in your minds as Jesus used the exact same words to describe the future day of judgment the future day of the Lord in Matthew chapter 24 and 25 now drop down to verse 30 of Joel chapter 2. And I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire in columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord. You saw the present evidence of the day of the Lord show up in your own midst and you can bank on the fact of the credibility of God that when he speaks about this future day, it's gonna happen in the same way. Trust it. God is coming. Be ready. Judgment is on its way. So what should we do? Joel, embedded between verses 1 and 2 and the end of this chapter, will do similarly, similarly what Peter will do in calling the people to repentance. Joel chapter 2, 
verses 12 to 13, says this, Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping, with mourning, and rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. <laughs> you have a God of mercy, a God who desires repentance, a God, as we saw in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, now turning back to where you had your finger, the Lord, as we see, who is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. God's heart is a heart of mercy. God wants you to rend your heart and not your garments, meaning he wants the repentance of your heart to be deep and real, not external and superficial. He wants it to go to the core of your being. He's calling you to repentance. He's calling you to himself as he has made a way for repentance and forgiveness through the death and resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ. So Peter will pick up on this theme from Joel chapter two and will fill it out for us. What sort of people ought you to be, he will say in chapter three, verse 11 of 2 Peter. What should we do? What sort of people ought we to be? What should be the response of those who anticipate the coming of God? What should be their posture? Well, we see in verse 11, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? I think we can appreciate the fact that accountability brings a sense of impending judgment and discipline. And when we sense that discipline and accountability is coming, we change direction in our life. There is a course correction in us. Peter uses the word for holiness, which is a distinct quality of God. He's used this in his first letter to describe God in his essence in chapter 1, verses 15, or yeah, 15 and 16, when he says, as he who called you is holy, speaking of God himself, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. How can we ever emulate the holy quality and character of God? There's only one way. And Peter gives us the answer in his second letter. It happens as he has given us divine power. Divine power, his indwelling Holy Spirit who activates a heart of obedience and leads us in strength to obedience. Leads us to holiness. He begins to fashion in us a life that craves and desires holiness, to be like God, to emulate his character. Holiness and godliness. This word for godliness is the word religion or devout practice, an appropriate belief in God. And we saw that, that the, the sure faith that we have leads to sureness and steadiness in our con calling. Our calling and election are sure because we have a sure and steady foundation of truth. God's work through his word and God's work through his spirit helps to create a holy and godly life. 
Those who have a present awareness of accountability will seek to look like God. There is a, an accountability aspect, but I also think that Peter is drawing another truth here. And I would agree with John Piper that there is something else in play. When we come to understand the end of all things, when we come to realize that everything in this life is going to burn up, we begin to understand the futility of laying up treasure here, of stockpiling all of our energy here, all of our hopes here, all of our comforts here, all of our attention and priorities that are focused in the here and now, and we realize how ridiculous that is because at the end of time, it's all going to burn. It's hopeless. It's insanity for us to spend so much of our life, so much of our energy on the priorities of the here and now without any consideration of the future heavens and new earth that God is bringing. Much like what the preacher says in Ecclesiastes, vanity of vanity, all is vanity. As we begin to understand the the futility and the temporary nature of this life, that everything's going to be burned up, everything's going to be dissolved, the heavens and the earth are going to be consumed with fire. We realize how much I should pay attention to the mission that God has called me to and the things that are eternal. I like what C.T. Studd says. It's a familiar phrase. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. The only thing that's going to survive is a life of godliness and holiness. And by the way, it's not a holiness or a godliness that is self-created. It's a holiness and a godliness that comes from God himself. His righteousness, his power, his spirit, his word, dependence upon him to carry us to the finish line, to sanctify us through and through. Jesus makes this salient point to his audience in Luke chapter 12, verses 32 to 34. He says, Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Okay, great, kingdom's coming. So what should my life look like? Well, here it is. Sell your possessions. And give to the needy. Provide yourself with money bags that do not grow old. With a treasure in the heavens that does not fail. Where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. What are you laying up treasure in? What is the all-consuming priority of your life? Those who recognize the soon coming accountability, as John will say in 1 John chapter 2, verse 28, is we can be confident and not be ashamed before him in his coming because if you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. So the accountability and the relationship that we have with God steers our affection and our life in the direction of righteousness. But there's something more at play, and that is when we come to realize that this life is empty and will be burned up, we'll begin to realize how ridiculous it is for us to invest in anything but heaven. Hmm. 
So, what sort of people ought you to be? Holy and godly. And finally, and briefly, what should we do while we wait? What should we do while we wait? We see the answer to that in verse uh, 12 and 13. Waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. This word for waiting is a word that, des- that describes this perpetual activity. It's a, it's a participle, and we've seen these many times, and it helps to sh- set the condition of life that is continuing in this direction, a direction of waiting. Waiting is a, is, a, is a massive theme for Peter in the next several verses. In verse 12, he says, waiting for the day of God. In verse 13, he says, waiting for a new heavens and new earth. In verse 14, he says, therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent. There is a waiting. There is an expecting. There is an anticipating that happens for those who are true believers. But it's not the waiting of this world. It's a waiting of readiness and activity. It's not a passive waiting. It's an active one. There's a diligence, a responsibility, an anticipation of waiting. It's kind of like those of you who understand waiting in terms of a marriage. When you're waiting for that wedding day, you're not just sitting around twiddling your thumbs, as we came to understand. There's a lot of preparation involved. There's a lot of things to buy. There's a lot of decorations to purchase. There's a a wedding dress. There are planning things that have to happen. There are invitations that have to go out. There's a a church that has to get ready. There are people that have to come. There's an active part of waiting that we don't understand. And those who are waiting in a biblical way are waiting with anticipation, activity, and diligence. They're seeking and striving as Jesus comes back. There's this growing affection and he's coming. I, I can remember driving 380 miles one way to see the person who would be my future bride. And let me tell you, as those miles got closer, like I think the, the foot got a little further on the, on the pedal, right? There's this growing anticipation and and desire to see God. And so when there is this desire, there is this diligence, this working. So what do we do? And this is the most amazing part, and I'll try to wrap this up quickly. It says, waiting and hastening. Waiting and hastening. Did, Did you get the hastening part? Like, there is something that we can do in the waiting that that almost accelerates the process. Now, Now, don't get me wrong. There is a fixed moment in time that Jesus has planned or the Father has planned to come. But but as his people are waiting the right way, we can almost accelerate that process. So what do we do? How How do we hasten the day? How do we get it here? Well, there's at least three things. First is we repent. We learn to repent. As Joel would say in Joel chapter 2, and as Peter will say in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, 
It says, He is patient, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. God is holding back His coming for the people that He has called to Himself to repent. So, don't wait around. (laughs) Repent. Turn your heart to Him. Recognize your sin. Come to a place of yielding to God and call the people around you, those who you love, those who you see are wandering away from God and you're worried about the potential conflict, you're worried about the potential uh, aggravation that might come as you confront them on that sin, but as you do that, you are calling them to uh, repentance and accelerating or hastening the day of Christ. We can repent. And we can call people to repentance. But we can also call people to pray. And you can pray. It's no coincidence that Jesus builds this in to the model prayer. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. God, I'm praying for it. I want to hasten that day. I'm praying that your kingdom will be present. That your kingdom will come. Your will will be done. I'm praying for it. I'm longing for it. I'm seeking to couple my energy with your promise. And finally, we preach. We preach the gospel. Matthew 24, 14 says, And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. So, who is it? In your class, students, who is it in your class that needs Jesus? Who do you need to tell so that Christ can come? Who is it in your workplace that needs to know Jesus? They need to hear the gospel. They need to respond, and then the end can come. Who is it in your community? Who is your neighbor across the street? They just need to hear the gospel. They need to hear it from you. God put you there on purpose. And then when you share the gospel with them and they respond, boom, Christ comes. Maybe that could happen. Hasten the day by repenting and praying and by preaching. Let's pray. Thank you that you're coming, Lord. Help us not to just sit around twiddling our thumbs. Oh God, I pray that you would help us to be eager and ready and diligent and active in our waiting. May we hasten the day of your kingdom coming and your will, your will being done on earth as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. Have a good day.